Good morning. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. You can hear us at 1450 on the AM dial. Something you've been doing now for 67 years. 67 years. How about a round of applause? Our studio audience here at WKXL uh, this morning. We went on the air June 15th, 1946. And today is June 15th, 2023. So 67 years of uh, WKXL and uh, still 77 years, yeah. 77 years. Ah, that's my mistake. We celebrated 75 a couple of years ago, 77 years of WKXL and still going strong, stronger than ever here at 1450 AM, 103.9 on the FM dial in Concord, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond and streaming, which is something we did not have back in 1946, <laughs> around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. Learn more and find your plan at deltadentalcoversme.com. And uh, very excited today uh, about our show. A pair of the area's most accomplished authors... Paul Brogan and uh, Margaret Porter, it is an honor to have you both uh, in studio. Welcome. Thank you. You're very brave to have the two of us here together this morning. <laughs> well, I, I figured I, I might not have to say very much, so, you know, <laughs> here on our 77th birthday. But, uh, Margaret, first time for you in, in studio on, on this program. Paul, uh, you've been here a couple times before, yes. and it's uh, it's great to have both of you with us. I will start with, uh, with Margaret, and uh, uh, just a prolific author, 15 books is, to your credit, so far, yes. So but far, that, that have been published, yes. But, I, f I finished sixteen, but it's not uh, it's not out yet. It not out yet. Okay, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that later on. But uh, from uh, what I understand, you grew up in a family of readers and writers, so your your destiny kind of was uh, preordained. Well, there were lots of books in my house, and uh, there were no restrictions on uh, what I could take off a shelf and read. So, yes, I had lots of readers and my family and, and some writers, academic writers and history buffs and all of that. So it all mashed together in my upbringing and my brain. And that's what I do now. And, and I heard that uh, at an early age, you uh, started to invent characters. I did. Yes. From about the time I could hold a crayon, I would draw pictures and illustrate stories and make up stories and I think I was writing probably writing my first novel at about age 12 or 13 in a ser kind of serious way. Well, that 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 is really something uh, in itself and and Paul, when were you first intrigued by the uh, literary world? As a child, I think in the parochial schools they really encouraged us to write mm -hmm. and to tell stories and to share things. And I think probably in grammar school that I first found it interesting. Yeah. Now, Margaret, we talked about the 15 books that have been published, the one that is uh, is, is on the way. But prior to that, yes. prior to that, um, you were an actress. I was, yes. Tell us about that. Well, that also started when I was very young. I was a performer on stage in adult theater uh, from the age of 10. So I really did grow up on stage and backstage and did plays all through my teen years in adult theater and 
then went on to college, majored in theater as well, did some um, film location work, extra extra work. In, mm-hmm. um, so I was a performer working with casts and crew of dozens and hundreds, and it's, it's strange to look back and think I was with such a large crowd of creatives, and now I'm essentially one person in a room right. <laughs> yeah. writing a yeah. book. <laughs> Did, did you appreciate the time, uh, you know, appreciate what you were doing at the time? Because so many people I've, I've found, and I think I could include myself in this, uh, that when you're younger, you don't always appreciate what you had, uh, you know, at, at a younger stage of your life. And you look back on it and say, wow, that, that was pretty special. It was very special. Yeah. I, I kept diaries the whole time, and it's, it's really amusing and kind of embarrassing sometimes <laughs> to go back and to read um, lots of this happened at rehearsal and that happened at rehearsal, and we had a great show, and we got a good review and all those kinds of things. And I, I was definitely living it all in the moment, but it's really interesting to go back from the perspective of an, an adult person so far removed from it and, and to read my thoughts as a teenager and a younger person. Yeah, I, I can imagine. How, how did you get into the, uh, the motion picture business? Well, I, I went to school on a uh, – went to college on a, on a school campus that was quite picturesque. Ah. And so it was quite frequently used as a filming location. And so Alan Alda and Carol Burnett and uh, – were there making the Four Seasons movie back, I can't remember, the 80s or something. And um, I had friends who were doing location scouting. And, of course, the theater people were brought in to be extras and appear, you know, on the sidelines and that kind of thing. And it was fascinating to watch that whole production process. So when I went to graduate school in radio, TV, film, again, I had the opportunity to be on set, on location, doing extra work as well. Wow, so that that is terrific. So you're you're in the four seasons. Are you uh, in well, that as an extra or uh, uh, in a in a sports scene on the sideline? I mean, uh-huh. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever picked myself out that, yet in the crowd. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I had some friends who were who were also on on the team, but I was not a sportsy per, sporty person in school. So if I'd been on the on the field as one of the players, I might have gotten more screen time. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah. And uh, and uh, theatrically, uh, what what have you done? Theatrically, um, I started in The Music Man as Amaryllis because uh-huh, I yeah. could play the piano, and so that, that person has to be yeah. able to play the piano and sing. And then I went from that into different kinds of dramas and comedies. I was in The Crucible. I played Mary Warren, who was one of the, one of the girls who is hysterically accusing people of witchcraft and interestingly then married a descendant of of uh, a witchcraft a witch trial judge in the uh, judge hathorn in the play is is one of the judges and and my husband is from families from salem so you know, ah. there's this weird circular thing about how i played a witch and he had an ancestor who was a witch judge um, and just different different kinds of plays. Um, then in in college, there was more cl- of a classical tradition, doing period plays, um, restoration theater, and and doing learning accents and and different kinds of movement, different kinds of styles of acting, which was more and in, more intensive. So I had experience before I got the training, you might say. Yeah, yeah. 
I know, Paul, uh, you, you've played uh, Peter Pan. I've, I've heard that rumor. Huh? <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, I did, and I loved it. I grew up uh, seeing the Mary Martin version on television, and I knew that was a role I coveted, and people told me you can't do it. Guys don't play Peter Pan. And so that made me all the more determined when I had the opportunity. And periodically I'll launch into a crow while I'm shaving in the morning in the mirror. <laughs> so uh, you both had your theatrical experiences. Do you do any more of that, uh, Margaret? No, no, I'm not a night person in the no. way that I used to be. So um, I, I, I have toyed with the thought, what would it be like? But my lifestyle is just so different now. And, and um, I can't, it's hard to imagine doing it again. And I don't know, I don't know if I could remember lines nowadays the way I used to be able to do it yeah. in the past. It, it always amazes me uh, how these people can re- remember lines. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's what they're they're trained to do, and I, I, I marvel at that. I, I, I don't think I would be able to do it myself, but uh, I can only memorize numbers of players, you know, <laughs> in, in, in what I do. But uh, we are very delighted today to have uh, two great guests. Margaret Porter is with us, author of, well, 15 published books, another one on the way. Maybe we can talk about that, but we'll talk about uh, some of the others. And uh, Paul Brogan is here, and uh, his latest is A Sprinkling of Stardust Over the Outhouse. I would recommend it. Still available at Gibson's, right? Yes. And on Amazon. Yes. And uh, your books, Margaret, uh, available uh, everywhere as well. Well, they're definitely at Gibson's because I saw some on the shelf just a few days ago. So, yes. There you go. And it is great to have uh, both of you in studio today. And uh, we will talk about more of uh, Margaret's books. We haven't even scratched the surface as to uh, what she has written uh, over the years. But we will. We will get to it uh, right here as we celebrate our 77th anniversary. How about that? And we could not have two better people in studio uh, than uh, Margaret Porter and Paul Brogan to help us uh, celebrate today. Here at WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, Kale and Company Live, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL as we celebrate the station's 77th, 77th birthday today. 77 and still going strong here at 1450 AM, 1039 on the FM dial, 1019 FM in Manchester and beyond and streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Margaret Porter is in studio with us today. Paul Brogan is here, and uh, during the break, we found out that you guys have something in common. As, as you, you heard before the break, uh, Margaret played uh, Amaryllis in, uh, the, in The Music Man, 
And you were in a, a rendition of the the Music Man, yes, and I, played Winthrop. Winthrop, exactly. Yeah. and I don't think we ever talked about that no, Margaret this before. Is, this is it's new one of those news. things. Yeah. So, another connection that we found we have. Yeah, see that. Now, now, where did you uh, play it? Uh, play Amaryllis. I played it at a community theater in Macon, Georgia. In Macon, Georgia. Yes. Now, where are you from originally? I am from. I grew up in Macon, Georgia. In Macon, Georgia. <laughs> yes, and went on to um, the big city of Atlanta, and then the big city of Denver, and now Concord, New Hampshire. Well, there you go. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And of course, Macon had a famous uh, hockey team at one time that sold more merchandise than any hockey team going. NHL, minor league hockey team, the Macon Whoopie. That's right. Yep. <laughs> they, I, I, I guess uh, they, they did very well. I, I don't think they're uh, in operation anymore, as far as I know. No, but the memory lives the, on. The memory lives on of the Macon Whoopie. Well, another thing I discovered. <laughs> See? There you go. So, Margaret, when did you become a full-time writer? It was um, when I got married, my husband's brother was worked for a computer company and gave us uh, a personal computer as a wedding present. Wow. All my life up to that point, I had been a hunt and peck kind of typewriter, whiteout kind of writer. And having that computer keyboard and the ease of making corrections was quite helpful in being able to to write consistently without the hassle of typing and whiteout and all the things that people don't even remember probably anymore. And the other part of it was that I had moved away from all of my broadcasting, film, contacts, and I was doing some f- freelance writing. Um, but it was uh, there was a point when we, when we married. I had a job in a uh, market research company with a terrible commute, and I, that was not going to be very conducive to married life. And so <laughs> um, I stopped that job and said, this is the time, I think, when I should start writing. I've got the equipment with the computer, I've got the tools, I've got the time, I'm going to, to do that. So so that's what I did as a newlywed. My husband would go off to work or go on the travels that he did, and I would be at home with the dog and the computer, and I wrote books. And, so. yeah, and, and uh, 16 historical novels later? 15 historical, yeah. one contemporary. That's the ah. six, number 16 is contemporary. Contemporary, okay. Yes. So, so what, what was the first one you wrote? The first one I wrote was set, um, was a historical romance set in Ireland, and it was called The Heiress of Ardara. It's out of, been out of print forever. And it was, I think that was my third completed manuscript that was accepted for publication, and it was accepted by Doubleday and Company in New York. And I um, did not have an agent at the time, but I kind of made a list of the literary agents I was interested in, and I got a phone call from Doubleday, and the editor said, we got your book, we like your book, we want to, we'd like to publish your book. It was, you know, this is the stuff of dreams. Yeah, and and sure. uh, I said, okay, and I had been taught, never agree to anything, um, 
until you've had some professional advice. And mm-hmm. of course, in, in theater and film, everybody had agents. So yeah. getting a literary agent was top of mind. And I said, thank you very much. Um, when I, I'll have an agent get in touch with you. And I immediately called the first name on my list of prospective agents and, and <laughs> said, I just had a publication offer from Doubleday. Would you like to be my agent? And the, of course, I'd done all the work uh, of sending the manuscript and everything. And yes, the agent was happy to uh, work out the deal. So that's that's how it started. That's an amazing story. I mean, your, your first book being picked up by a major publishing house like Doubleday. Well, there's a there's another part to that story uh-huh. about um, it takes about a year, give or take, for a book to be published. And so I don't remember exactly when the book was accepted, but and the the after it was published, um, I, it was all exciting, and I had some a, a book launch and all of that. And I got a phone call from New York City from another publisher that I had submitted that book to, and they said um, one of our colleagues has been let go. We were cleaning out the desk and found lots of manuscripts. And your, the manuscript of your book was in there, and we saw it, and we want to know if it's still available. We would like to publish it. And I said, oh, well, that's very gratifying, but the book was published by Doubleday earlier this month. So that book was almost bought twice, <laughs> published that, twice. That is really something. <laughs> that, for, for a first-time uh, you know, writer, that is, that is an amazing story. Well, yeah, I figured I was in the right business at that point. I guess I so. Guess. <laughs> I, I guess so. Published by Doubleday right off the bat. Did you continue with uh, Doubleday? Well, I didn't. That was early in my career. Um, I, I suffered from what we call in the publishing business being orphaned, which is when they either close the publishing line or the editor leaves and you're assigned to another editor. So I moved from Doubleday <clears throat> to another company and then from and then I was in hardcover for my early books, and then the the second publishing house that I was with would sell the paperback rights to Penguin USA, which is a big major publisher. Mm-hmm. And then Penguin had me write original books for them, so I went out of the hardcover market into the paperback market, which was larger distribution, more copies printed, and and um, was a step up. Although the cachet of being in hardcover was was a nice way to start out. Yeah. Oh, a- absolutely. So, so uh, for the benefit of, of those uh, who who don't know, uh, what is an historical novel? It's a novel that's set in the past in yeah. historical times. But there are many, many subgenres of historical novels. I think probably the one that more people are familiar with are historical romances, which are are very popular, like the Bridgerton stories that have been uh, mm-hmm. turned into television series on Netflix. Yeah. And the then there are many other aspects of historical fiction. There's literary historical fiction where it's books that are set in the past, like Lincoln and the Bordeaux or something where it has a very literary quality. And <clears throat> then there's historical mystery, which are mystery stories that are set in, in the past. And then I've written um, two of my novels are biographical historical fiction, which that was what I cut my teeth on as an early reader, was reading stories about queens and women, uh, um, first ladies and things like that, right. which were, were yeah. novelizations of and fictional, somewhat fictionalizations, but based on fact, yeah. of people's real people who existed. And those that always intrigued me, and so my first biographical historical novel was set in 
England in the court of Charles II. And then my second one was about Hedy Lamarr. And then my third one was about Phyllis Fraser, who was Ginger Rogers' first cousin. So mm. writing biographical fiction, you have a responsibility to present the person's life in as accurate a way as possible. Uh, but also there's just enough mystery about their lives that you can, that the imagination can take over and you can make up conversations and you can, if motivations, if you're not aware of what a motivation is, you can make an informed speculation. So that's, uh, that has been really an enjoyable part of my writing was being able to do that genre of historical fiction. Uh, absolutely. What's your favorite Margaret Porter book? Uh, <laughs> Um, I would say uh, it's a tie between Beautiful Invention and the book on Phyllis Frazier because both of those were what really nudged me to write the mystery I'm working on now because that's uh, set in Concord in 1962 with real people involved yeah. Yeah. but fictional conversations and other things around it. So she really is responsible for what will be my fourth book. And uh, we, I know we're coming up to, uh, to break time here, and uh, we'll be back after that. But uh, I want you to talk more about uh, Beautiful Invention. That, that is a remarkable story. I, I saw a biography a couple of years ago of uh, Hedy Lamarr on TV, and I was just blown away. I had no idea. You know, I've heard the name, uh, you know, Hedy Lamarr for a long time, but I had no idea what she accomplished uh, in her life. So we'll talk more about that uh, after this break. Margaret Porter is here along with Paul Brogan and uh, so glad to have them with us today as we celebrate 77 years of uh, WKXL uh, here on uh, Reddington Road in, in beautiful Concord, New Hampshire. We'll take a break. Kale & Company continues. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental as we celebrate 77 years of uh, being on the air here in Concord, serving Concord and beyond for all those years and uh, having a fascinating conversation both on and off the air today with a couple of authors Margaret Porter and uh, Paul Brogan. I'm sure most of you are familiar with uh, with both of them. And uh, we, we were even talking about uh, uh, Margaret's political career. Uh, <laughs> My brief uh, political career. Yeah. Well, longer than mine. So that's uh, but not by much. Not by much. Two terms in the legislature. That's right. Yes. I, I had one. You, you you had two. But I tell you what, it was a uh, for me a, a great, and I'm sure for you. Uh, a great learning experience, if nothing else. Oh, very much so. It, I, it was thoroughly enjoyable, and I was, I, I, you know, I met wonderful people, knowledgeable people, and I served on a very bipartisan committee, which was great. And I had really good friends on both sides of the aisle, and and uh, have kept up with with some of them. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was a really wonderful experience. And I one some one of the most memorable things was being able to take legislative tours of the the dome and being able to go up to the very top to the cupola at the very top of the dome and having that view of Concord that very few people have seen. Right. It's right. Wonderful. Yeah. 
I never did that. I'll have to run again. to get that opportunity but what inspired you to to run um i i just was really interested in in public service and um members of my family had had served in government in washington Mm -hmm. and new hampshire is the kind of state where it's easy to be involved and had been, I had been involved in my community, and I, that was sort of the next step. Yeah. So it was um, just it was something I was I was interested in, in doing a way to serve the state to serve my local communities. I represented Epsom, Allenstown, and Pittsfield at that time. That di- has been redistricted, and uh, but I didn't run for a third term because I I sensed that we were going to be moving to Concord and that I would be moving out of district. So, uh, so I didn't stay in any longer. But At four years under the Golden Dome. That's right. There you go. And Paul, have you ever thought about it? I ran for mayor of Concord in 2015. <laughs> yeah. I didn't win, obviously. But uh, it was a great experience to go around and talk with people, meet people, and just hear various opinions and ideas. And it gave me an appreciation for you know people that do run and the commitment that they make and what it involves. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and... Uh, Congratulations to you for running. Thank you. Uh, I mean, uh, that uh, that takes uh, a lot of effort as well. I'll bring you one of my buttons next time. All right. Show. I have a whole I, I, box filled. Outstanding. <laughs> I, will, I will treasure that uh, Brogan for Mayor uh, button. What might have been. <laughs> what, what might have been. Uh, Margaret, getting getting back to your literary career now, uh, your, your books are all extensively researched. They are. And uh, you, you know, and, and you you visit the places that uh, that you write about. I do. Uh, you're a, a world traveler. I am. Uh, tell us. I know you just uh, recently got back from Great Britain. Yes, that's right. We were uh, in England for almost two weeks. Yeah. And it was it was nice to be back. We had not. We used to go every year. My husband did work over there, and he would go several times a year. And and we had not been over since the pandemic, so it was it was good to catch up with special people over there and to see special places. And then there was uh, there were some uh, activities that were related to books, future books. Yeah, I was going to ask if uh, you know you spent time doing doing some research while you were there. Well, I did, and I it was it, it was just mostly absorbing atmosphere in the locations where this contemporary novel is set and which takes place mostly in England but partly in New England in Maine and then the sequel to that takes place in England and in New Hampshire. Oh. I'm finally after <laughs> this it will be it's my 17th book and I've just I'm in the early stages of that book, but I have finally, finally written about New Hampshire, and specifically there's some Concord and Lake Winnipesaukee aspect to it as well, which is fun. So um, I don't have to go very far to do that research. Both of which you know very well. So so there you go. But uh, can you imagine that? 17 books. Mm-hmm. Well, it's over a very long period of time. It's not like well, I did 17 books in 17 years. <laughs> so, so well, yeah. While you bring that up, how is is there you know an average time that it takes to to write uh, one of your books, or does it vary depending on uh, topic or research, or how does it work? 
all the above. It takes it, it varies from book to book. Some books are very heavily researched. Mm-hmm. Other books, um, I start and then I think about it some more and do some more research and things. So, so the gestation for some of the books can be quite long. And there are books that I haven't written yet that I started researching 10 years ago or mm-hmm. more that, that eventually I will get to, and I've collected the information, and now I need to write the book. But The Myrtle Wand, which was the one that came out last fall, that book was the fastest book I ever wrote. It was I wrote it. I had the idea. I had the, the research um, was very specific, and I was able to accomplish it before, but mostly during the writing of it. And then... Um, I wrote it in uh, four months, whereas usually it takes me nine months or mm-hmm. 12 months or 15 months to write a book. But, <laughs> but after writing it so quickly, the, the revisions and the editing took almost twice as long as it took to write the book. So I think it probably really did take me about a year to write that book when, when I incorporate the, the aftermath, which is cleaning up, <laughs> yeah. the cleanup job. So how, how does the process uh, work for you? I know I've talked with uh, Paul about this in the past, that uh, uh, Paul is uh, very uh, dedicated and uh, spends some time every day, a uh, certain uh, amount of time every day working on his, his, his books and, and his writing. Uh, what about you? How do you... Uh, how do you go about it? I'm very fluid in my in my writing schedule. I it depends where I am in the process. At the beginning of the process, I'm it's very intense. Um, I get up in the morning and I'm ready to get to it, and then work through the day till my brain gives out in the afternoon. And then there's the middle section of the book where I kind of ease into it and. Um, you know, mornings are kind of leisurely, and then maybe sometimes I won't start writing until after lunch. It just sort of depends. And then the closer I get to a deadline, <laughs> <laughs> then it completely takes over my life. The dog usually gets fed. The husband sometimes has to feed himself. <laughs> and um, it'll be late at night, 11 o'clock or something, and, and I'm still frantically working because it's, it's so intense towards the, towards the end of the story. It's like the downward slope of a roller coaster. You just can't, you can't get off. You can't stop. You're just, just your trajectory and gravity is pulling you towards the end, towards the bottom. And that's so, so it really depends where, where exactly I am in a book. And then if I'm not having a good writing day, if I just don't have the writing mojo, there's always something to research, to look up. Mm-hmm. And usually that will trigger the, the, that writing part of me and, and just doing a little bit of research and figuring out how to fit it into the storyline. And then the next thing I know, I'm back in the book and, and writing again. Do you always know where the storyline is going? I do. You do? Yes. Okay. I've I'm, talked to other writers who say they, you know, they, oh, they yes. change it, you know, in the course of writing and what have you. But Well, there are things that do change along the way. But mm-hmm. for the most part, I am, I, I structure my story, my character arcs. I do all of that in advance. So I know where I'm going. But within the framework, my imagination is free to change things or things I never thought of and sometimes in the revision in very late stages I will I will make some alterations and but but I'm an outliner um, I like to do that I like to have my my path my map ahead of time I am 
I am awed by the people who can sit down to write a book and they don't know necessarily how it's going to end or where it's going to go or how they're going to get there. It's a wonderful art and a skill, but it's not one for me. I'm much more structured. But you know exactly where you're going. I do. Yeah. Now, the yeah. ending, sometimes I've, I'll write the ending first, and it may not really? be the actual yeah. ending that in that particular form. It might be changed by the time I get to it through the writing of the book. But, but I, I know I have a good sense of how they end. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, you know exactly how it's going to come out. I like to yeah. follow a path. And there you go. And you followed it uh, very well. 17 books. Wow. Almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> Getting there. Our guests, Margaret Porter and uh, Paul Brogan. Great to have both of them with us in studio today here at WKXL. Did I mention it was our 77th uh, anniversary <laughs> or birthday? Congratulations to everyone involved over the years. There have been uh, a cast of characters here over the last 77 years and uh, a lot still to come from uh, WKXL NHTalkRadio.com It's Kale and Company Live and we are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. We have a lot more coming up with uh, Margaret Porter and Paul Brogan this morning here on WKXL. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We're here with Margaret Porter and Paul Brogan this morning, uh, two of the outstanding authors uh, in the area. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And uh, Margaret with 17 books, almost, almost 17. 16 for sure, almost 17. 16 completed. 16 Fif- completed. 15 published and one underway. One, okay. So you've always got one underway, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Have you ever been working on books concurrently? Uh, yes, I, yeah. ha- I have, and it doesn't work. So It doesn't work. Yes, so you, when, that's... I, when I had the idea for the Myrtle Wand, I had this thought that, okay, I could keep writing a historical biographical novel, and then this little side project um, that I was writing as a retelling of the Ballet Giselle. And I would do one, try to do one one day and one the other, and then the the Giselle story just completely took over, and I said, this is not going to work at all. So I set that book aside and focused on the one. There, there you go. And uh, so we mentioned earlier uh, Beautiful Invention, yes, uh, a novel of uh, Hedy Lamarr. And uh, as I mentioned, I, I saw her biography on TV a, a couple of years ago. I was just blown away by it. I mean, I, I and here I thought she was uh, just uh, you know uh, a Hollywood beauty and uh, you know a, a motion picture star, but a lot more than that for she, sure. She had a brilliant mind, and it was not realized. And she was also quite talented as an actress, which mm-hmm. again was not necessarily realized at NGM. She was put in certain kinds of exotic femme fatale sort of roles, and she had a great gift for comedy. And that was never, I think, exploited to the extent that it, that it should have been. So there was a lot more to her than met the eye, you could say. And writing her story was, was a privilege and an adventure. And um, I, I, my, she was the Hollywood crush of my dad, I think. You know, he would, he would uh, say, Hedy, you know, talk about Hedy Lamarr and Dorothy Lamour and all these. And yeah. it didn't really mean anything to me at the time. And then 
much later when it became known that she had um, invented, co-invented uh, frequency hopping technology, and um, which is the basis of satellite communications, Wi-Fi technology, broadband, all these things that we that we take for granted uh, nowadays, um, that really sparked an interest in me in my interest in finding out more. How did this woman happen to be doing all of that? And then, of course, delving into her life in Vienna as a as a sort of a society girl who wanted to become an actress over her parents' objections somewhat. And then as, uh, the, as the, with the rise of Nazism and Hitler's uh, planned invasion of Austria and the fact that she was of Jewish heritage meant that that was not a safe place for her. So it was, you know, it was just, it's just a fascinating story how she went to Hollywood and eventually became an overnight sensation. And then um, during World War II decided that... Um, she had information from her first marriage to a munitions um, owner of factories that, mm. that made weaponry, that she could maybe develop a weapon that would help the Allies against the Nazis and, and help her own country, which had been taken over by Hitler at that point. And unfortunately, um, by the time Pearl Harbor happened and the United States got into the war, they were too busy using the weapons that they had <laughs> to fight in the various fronts to be able to develop weaponry from her technology. But it was later discovered and was later put to very good use. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And we're uh, using it now. What, yeah, <laughs> when it's streaming. What? what, what yeah, exactly. What? What a, a fascinating story. I mean, it really is to me one of the most uh, miraculous stories of, of all time. Really. When you think, uh, I mean, most people just just think of her probably as an, an actress yes, and a very, a very accomplished one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, was in a, a scandalous movie uh, yes. y- y- years ago, <laughs> yeah. and 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 that's what probably most people think of. But boy, when you uh, read Margaret's book or if you see a biography of her, you will uh, learn quite a bit. Now, uh, what uh, what kind of research did you do for that one? Well, I knew when I started writing that book that the first scene would had to be the filming of Ecstasy, which was the scandalous movie okay. in which she appeared nude, and um, and the impact of that on on her later life and career and her first marriage and all that was pretty significant. Um, I did a lot of research in um, Hollywood era press reports, the newspapers. Of course, a lot of the information was manufactured by the press officers mm-hmm. at, at the studios. And so you have to kind of read be- between the lines of the fluff that they were putting out about the, the people who they had under contract. And But also there were, you know, tracing the development of her invention. Her co-inventor, uh, um, George Antile wrote a memoir where he talked about how they they worked together to create it. In her own memoir, which was was ghostwritten for her, she did not mention the invention, I don't think. And the ghostwriters made her story so salacious and so shocking, and they just made up a lot of things, I think, also. And she sued them. She was not happy with that representation of her life, um, it would have been great if she'd actually written her own memoir yeah. from her own point yeah. of view because she was a pretty sharp lady. And it, yeah. and uh, but she didn't like the version that came out. But it was also interesting to read it as as background information. 
Mm. Wow. And then you added your own personal touches I did. to uh, to her story. Right. Well, the and the people that she interacted with in Hollywood, which was was also interesting, studying Louis B. Mayer and how he ran the studio, and then her uh, several marriages, how her her life. Um, with her husbands and the reasons that they would marry her was she just arm candy or um, ha- and and the fact that she wanted a, a domestic life at a time when w- one of her marriages broke up and she became the sole supporter of her two children and she had to work 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 in the films all the time uh, but she was also very much a homebody and liked to cook and liked to raise chickens and and sell eggs and things like that so th- there was just more than a duality to her her personality and her her life and i think she never quite got satisfied with um with her lot in life which is unfortunate but uh, she was a, a really interesting person to write about mm, i can well imagine that that came out in 2018 and uh, in 2021 the limits of limelight just uh, Tell us briefly, if you would, about that one. That's another showbiz one. That's another Hollywood story. Yep. And I got the idea for that book when I was researching the Hedy Lamar book. I was I was doing research into other Hollywood people that Hedy had interacted with. And I was trying to figure out if she had, or I saw something in an article in the press in the 1930s that mentioned Hedy Lamar and Ginger Rogers. They were at the same event or a premiere or something, and I thought, oh, Ginger Rogers, um, I wonder if they were close or how much they knew of each other. And I just went on this little tangent of research about Ginger and found out that at that time, Ginger Rogers had a first cousin who Ginger was trying to make a movie star in Hollywood. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. I never really heard of this person. What's going on here? And I did just a little bit of background research into Phyllis Fraser and, and, and came away thinking, okay, this is my next book. The Ginger Rogers cousin is the celebrity-adjacent person who had this completely other life, um, the Hollywood life, but then um, a very different life after she married Bennett Cerf, and she helped to create um, Dr. Seuss books, The Cat in the Hat, and all of that, and, ha- and went from Hollywood to a literary life in, in New York City, which really appealed to me, having been an actress who became yeah, a writer. Right. Um, and so that that was the the next book um, of biographical fiction, which was also set in Hollywood, but also moved to New York. You said she met Bennett Cerf or ma- married, married both, Bennett Cerf? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So for all you What's My Line fans <laughs> out there. Uh, yes. Yeah, That's the, right. the head of uh, Random House. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And she um, she actually appeared on What's My Line a couple of times. Oh, really? So, yeah. yeah. On YouTube, you can you can see her trying to fool her own husband about her wow. identity. <laughs> That that is something. Wow, I I, I can't read to uh, can't wait to read those books and uh, and and Margaret, you have been a, a delightful guest. We really appreciate you coming in. Well, I thank you for inviting me, and it's so great to be here with Paul as always. And I know Paul, you're still working on your latest, my mystery, the park set in White's Park, 1962. And that's an historical novel as it well. It is inspired by Margaret's work. That there you go, inspired I, by Margaret. The greatest compliment I can think of. Well, I'm sure many have been inspired by Margaret's work. Yes. Margaret and Paul, thanks so much for this uh, great hour. Truly appreciate it. 
Happy birthday. Yes, there you happy go. birthday to KXL. 77 years going strong, getting better than ever. Here on uh, 1450 AM, the original signal, uh, 1039 FM in the Capital Region, 1019 in Manchester and beyond, and streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. This show presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And don't forget, uh, tomorrow will be the Friday Fun Bunch with uh, Tom Raffio coming in and our resident uh, flick chick, Kitty Ray, will be joining us uh, as well. I always get it mixed up if she's the flick chick or the chick flick, but, you know, one way or the other, we'll talk a little movies uh, tomorrow. Uh, right here, Kale and Company Live, WKXL, NHTalkRadio.com. If you missed any of this show this morning or just want to hear it again, and who wouldn't, tune in tonight right after 7 o'clock, and uh, we'll play it for you one more time. Have a good Thursday, everybody. Mm-hmm.